Hello, and welcome to the Cynical Podcast, where we take deep dives into the shallow waters of today's blockbuster movies, star-studded films, and most hyped popcorn flicks. We're your hosts, Will, Clacy, and Malika, and today, we are starting a new quarantine edition mini-series because no new movies are coming out. We all have embarrassing blind spots in our movie-watching repertoire, films that are all-time classics that we have just never managed to find the time to sit down and watch. We're going to be going back and watching some of those movies now that we have an abundance of time on our hands to fill in the gaps. Using the IMDb top 250 movie list as our guide, we'll be finding the movies that we have always been meaning to get to and give a quick review of our first impressions. So without further ado, introducing our new podcast series, Tackling the 250. I did it! So, the first on our list of the Tackling the 250 podcast series is Die Hard. Quick synopsis of Die Hard. An NYPD officer tries to save his wife and several others taken hostage by German terrorists during a Christmas party at the Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles. This was kind of the inspiration for Tackling the 250. I was scrolling through movies on HBO and saw Die Hard and realized I had never seen Die Hard. And I was like, what the fuck? How is that possible? How have I gone 26 years without ever seeing Die Hard? It's such a ubiquitous movie in pop culture. Everyone knows it. There's so many arguments about whether or not it's a Christmas movie. One of the all-time heralded action movies starring Bruce Willis. And so we decided to give it a watch and get on the pod and talk about it. Guys, I was aghast that Will had never seen this movie. The amount of time he and I spend talking about film is honestly upsetting. <laughs> and that I had never brought this up, I'm like, that's on me. But also that I never made him watch it. I was, oh, I was like, we have to redefine our whole friendship. Like, watch this immediately. <laughs> I'm so relieved. It just took a quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> just a quarantine. To get you there, Well, A global um, pandemic. <laughs> yeah, right. And this movie, I could have sworn I'd seen it. And then last night I put it on to refresh myself and I was like, oh, turns out I've never seen the first Die Hard because I've seen the third one multiple times. And so I don't know, in my head, I thought I'd seen this. And it's also a movie that everyone quotes. Like, you know, I'm a big fan of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. They're always talking about it. So I honestly could have sworn I'd seen this movie. So I'm also like glad that I'm caught up, Clay. You can also be my friend again now. Guys, the friendship was so close to ending. It's like, <laughs> I can't well, even- it was... I had a similar experience because I was scrolling through HBO and I saw Die Hard and I was like, I don't think I've actually ever seen Die Hard. How is that possible? Have I seen it? And then I started it and I was like, nope, never seen it. Better just finish it and fall through. Yeah. And Malika, you bring up such a good point. It's such a memeable movie. What's come out was 1988, I believe. So over 30 years ago, it basically inspired a whole genre and trope of action movie, right? Like the everyman put in a situation, it's him against the world. You know, a lot of people are probably sick of that now, but this was really the start of that whole thing. And at the time, Bruce Willis was a TV star and it was really, really hard for TV stars to make that transition to film. Like outside of Bruce Willis, probably the next person to do it was like George Clooney, which like, come on, it's Clooney, look at that charisma. (laughs) So it's so bizarre to think of this kind of like, 
schlubby, everyday looking man becoming a huge film star off of a trope that hadn't even existed. He created this whole thing, him and John McTiernan. It's amazing. So Malika, what were your first impressions after watching it for the first time? I mean, honestly, I was just like, oh, I forgot this movie was set in the 80s. I was like, honestly, I was like rediscovering it. I was like, oh, the clothes, the hair. I was just like, oh yeah, that lot. Like when he says Yippee motherfucker, I was like, oh yeah, that. Like it was just like, almost like greeting an old friend, even though I'd not seen this movie because everything felt weirdly familiar, but not because as I said, I hadn't seen this movie. So it was just like, I don't know. It was fun in that sense. It was like a weird sense of nostalgia that I didn't deserve to have. (laughs) Unearned nostalgia, theme of the 2020s. (laughs) I liked it. It was a good action movie. It was weird seeing Bruce Willis with hair, Alan Rickman with a beard. R.I.P. Alan Rickman. I did think a lot about that. I was very sad that he's no longer with us. Yeah, I feel like it has a different note to his performance because he's gone now and you're like, and that was his first major film role. Die Hard was his first time being like a major actor on screen. He'd done- Like like, in Hollywood, you mean? Yeah, like he'd done plays and stuff like that, but this was his first like starring role in a movie and he absolutely nailed it. You know what? Speaking of that, I was actually surprised how little I recognized some of the other actors. Like, obviously, Bruce Willis, obviously, Alan Rickman, and the father from Family Matters. But everybody else, like, kind of were, like, nobodies that I didn't recognize from other movies. So I was like, oh, I guess it wasn't a starring turn for everybody. I expected to recognize more people than I ended up recognizing. Well, I knew I recognized the chief of police, Dwayne, from Breakfast Club. Right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The principal. You're right. You're yes. right. Get, Famous that guy, Paul Gleason. Mess with yeah, the Yeah, he's ball. always a dick. In Get the <laughs> horns. Yeah, he's the same guy. And one of the FBI agents, I feel like I've seen a lot. But other than that, I agree. The movie had way more plot holes and way cheesier than I was expecting for a movie that was like, you know, that's such a classic that seems like it's ubiquitous in pop culture. And part of me wonders if this was one of the first like big action Michael Bay type totally over the top excessive explosions and gunfights and so I wonder if that's why it's like so ubiquitous that everyone loves it so much because it was kind of one of the first to pioneer this genre but there were definitely some spots where I was like mm, that's uh, did we need that whoa 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 did point we need- these out to me <laughs> I'm actually looking at the IMDb page for this movie right now, and the poster actually has at the top 40 stories of sheer adventure as like the <laughs> tagline, which is like so cheesy, but also like so great. Like that should be like a roller coaster ride. Yeah. <laughs> Not a movie, but I don't know. It's it kind of fits. And yeah, that's why you have to remember, like, this movie came out in 1988. You know, it was a different time. So I was gonna say, I'll give it some leeway with essentially blowing up a building and it's still standing. This was pre 9-11, pre 9-11. Yeah. Yeah, And I think they didn't quite know some of the uh, structural integrity issues that, so I'll give it a pass on that one. But when he's on the roof using the fire hose to rappel down the side of the building and it blows up, I don't think that fire hose is still going to be intact and able to support his weight. Uh, Excuse me. It's a fire hose. (laughs) But also like as the fire hose falls out of the window, like that should have ripped him in half, just like the weight of it and like gravity. So I feel like in some of these action movies, you have to uh, forgive the lack of physics. I mean, we talked about this in Hobbs and Shaw as well. Like (laughs) if you want big explosions and things to look cool, you kind of have to forget some basic rules of physics. Well, the biggest thing for me was at the very end when 
one of Hans Gruber's henchmen, I don't know if he was ever named, but the one who McLean first killed his brother, so he had a vendetta against him. I think his name is like Carl's brother or something. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's yeah. Carl. And Bruce Willis hangs him, chokes him out. He's hanging from a chain for yes, a yes. good number of minutes. And then at the end, he just pops out after the building explodes. It's like, what? How is this dude <laughs> yeah. still alive? Guys, he's German. We all know they had superpowers in the 80s. Exactly. Like, what's the problem? And it's, isn't that a very classic trope of like in a horror movie, just when you think the bad guy is dead, he comes back. So I thought that was interesting like to throw that into a classic action movie. But I'd actually love to hear from Clay. Like you saw this movie for the first time at what age? Honestly, I don't think I ever saw this movie for the first time. I became part of this movie. Um, I I honestly don't know the first time I saw it. It's just like a part of my childhood. Um, I know we'd mentioned the, is it a Christmas movie debate? It would play a lot on like TBS, just like around Christmas time and stuff. So I just saw it. And then I actually started the tradition of watching this movie around Christmas when I was about like 21 or 22, where I would just watch it. I would just be like, oh, it's comforting. It's like putting on that sweater your grandmother knit you. And I freaking love this movie. Like for all the reasons that you guys are saying it's cheesy and it doesn't make any sense. Like those are the exact reasons why I love this movie. I love the everyman. I love when it's like, I mean, I love The Rock. Don't get me wrong. But it's like, of course you're going to win. You're like 8,000 pounds. You're basically like a human tank. Like yeah. Bruce Willis is not a human tank. I love the fact that he steps on glass and his feet are bleeding the entire yeah. movie and it sucks. Like it does have a little bit of realism in it with I, which I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the parts that to me like make it super endearing is the fact that I can kind of see this happening outside of, yeah, the explosion and the <laughs> hanging by the fire hose, whatever. Um, I can see some of this stuff actually happening and he's using his smarts. I love that. I love a hero that's not all brawn. It's a combination of brain and brawn. And he's like, we can get into maybe our favorite scenes because I think the element of where that is most on display is when uh, Hans Gruber is like fed up with John McClane. He's killing off his guys. He goes and finds him and pretends to be a hostage. And John McClane at first is like, sizing him up he doesn't know what the deal is he offers him a cigarette and for a lot of like people that love this movie that's the like clear turning point in which john mcclain is like the gears are turning and he's connecting the dots because the way that hans gruber holds his cigarette is very european i guess so like mm. i love that i love that he has like these street smarts about him and he uses that to outsmart these fancy private school educated villains like i don't know i love this movie so much everything about it is just like yeah, give me more of this. I wanted this movie to go on for an extra two hours. I mean, we got that with Die Hard 2. Not as great, <laughs> but Die Hard 3 kind of came back around. So Malik, I'm glad you've seen that one because it's <laughs> clearly the second best Die Hard movie. <laughs> Something I think it is really cool about this movie is kind of those dichotomies you talk about. On one hand, it's so absurd that they're blowing up this downtown LA building and like crazy explosions, gunfights. But on the other hand, you're right. There is like an element of realism, knowing how do I get out of this situation, using the walkie talkie, sizing up what's going on outside the building and inside the building. Like that tiny bit of realism is definitely there and it helps ground it. At the same time, like I think some of the best parts of this movie are like the interaction over the radio with the police chief, between John and the mm-hmm. police officer, between Hans and John McClane, like that's a really cool element. And it made me think is every conversation he has with 
the police heard by Hans. It has to be, right? They're all on the same I channel. I thought it was. Yeah, that's why they had to be really vague. Yeah. I think that's why they didn't use his name and they just called him Cowboy yeah. or whatever. A Roy, knew, yeah. Yeah, Roy. Roy. Roger. Yeah, mm-hmm. because they knew that like there's no there's no subterfuge in this situation. It's all just like how clever can John be? And even Hans as a villain, there's a cool dichotomy there of, you know, he's using all these explosives, but he's definitely sophisticated and smart. And like, you know, he presents himself to the outside as like a terrorist and just trying to free these other terrorist groups. But in reality, his only motive is to steal $600 million. So he even plays off of that dichotomy of what he is presenting and what his actual end goal is. So I thought that was really cool for like this kind of. Yeah. See, you guys, the layers. Yeah. It has more <laughs> substance than Hobbs and Shaw did. Yeah. Well, so we know Clay's favorite scene. What's yours, Will? My favorite scene was when Ellis goes in to try and negotiate with Hans because whoever that actor was, he like was such a perfect casting for that salesman <laughs> douche type. Yeah. He was so good at like talking down Hans, like trying to get John to come to his side. You know, the little interactions when he's holding away the walkie-talkie, like talking to Hans. Uh, I thought it was all really great. And the way that John McClane like knew exactly what Hans was going to do and trying to disassociate himself from Ellis. Like, no, tell him you don't know me. Tell him you have no idea who I am. He's going to kill you. Yeah. yeah, that's a really great scene. I feel like that actor, too, that played Ellis, like, I don't think he went on to do anything else. So that's clearly like... You know, if you ever watch the rewatchables, he is like the heat check award, the right? Like check, the guy yeah. that, yeah, he doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he owns every scene that he's he's in. Hans, Bubby, baby. It's yeah, like, yeah. What are you talking <laughs> about? He's like, I'm not method. Like, I was like, wow, yes. like, guy. He's snor- he was snorting <laughs> cocaine between takes. He was like, I got to get into the character. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite scene, Malika? Oh yeah, um, my favorite scene is actually almost the end when uh, Bruce Willis is coming out. He's with his wife. They've been reunited. And it just starts snowing paper. First of all, there's way too many pieces of paper. I was, I was like, definitely was like taken aback a bit. Like, what? That's a lot of bonds. Yeah. But anyway, I just kind of love that because this is supposed to be a Christmas movie, and a lot of people actually claim this as their favorite Christmas movie. I think Clay, you you said that earlier, and so I was like, oh, this is so nice. At the end of every Christmas movie, it has to snow, and here it is, and it's these pieces of paper. So I thought that was a really clever way of um, wrapping things up. Yeah, I'd like to think that that they had done most of the movie and they're like, guys, I think it's missing that one little thing. And then the director's like, got it. It's going to rain bonds. Guys, should we do five minutes on the Christmas movie debate? If we must. You kind of know where I stand already. Five minutes. Well, I wouldn't say definitely. I'm on the fence. I feel like it's 80% there for a Christmas movie, but I feel like it doesn't have enough. Like the first half of the movie, they're definitely tying in Christmas a lot. But I feel like they could have made like the party more Christmas themed, like have more Christmas decoration around in the lobby. They did a good job. Like I thought it was really cool how Hans is like whenever he was on screen and they scored him with, was it Jingle Bells, but in a really slowed down version. (laughs) Like I thought that was really cool how they turned this Christmas song into an evil person score. But I feel like... It's just like missing that last 20% to really make it a full-fledged Christmas movie. I mean, that's fair. You have to think about, I feel like the ways in which it is Christmassy, it is definitely surface level. Like, 
all right, yeah, it's this company's having a holiday party. So there's some decorations. It kind of gives me the impression that like the Christmas party was an afterthought. So I don't mind that as much of like, oh crap, you got to like throw some holiday party. All right, just get some stuff from Party City or whatever. Um, but then like John does make a lot of like Christmassy references. Like he's like, ho, ho, ho. So like, I don't know, I'm, I, I kind of with you. I can see how you can go one way or the other. But to me, it's like, it's the heart of the movie is this man that is, even though he's a jerk, John McClane, he's trying to save his marriage because it's the holidays and he's feeling lonely. So to me, that feels very Christmassy because that tends to be the theme of a lot of holiday movies. It's like people coming to terms with like the state of relationships or they're trying really hard to make something work, you know? So like it doesn't have like obviously the snowy setting, but I definitely feel like the emotional weight behind the motivations are Christmassy, at least for John McClane. I mean, to me, a Christmas movie is a movie set during Christmas and this takes place on Christmas Eve. So check. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's right, Malika. Get you on my side. So we're two to one. Yeah, I was like, I don't need five minutes to debate this. It's a Christmas movie. If it was set on Valentine's Day, it would be a Valentine's Day movie. That's fair. That's fair. True. So Malika, something you really loved about this movie and you wanted to talk about was how John McClane is just in a tank top without any shoes and he's so stripped down with no resources to start the movie. Well, at least to start the action part of the movie. And he has to kind of earn his way into getting all of his machine gun the lighter and like he's really fighting against these super equipped villains without anything when the fighting starts yeah and he earned his victory at the end so i really i i really did like that and it's such an interesting choice right like it's he's not this suave james bond type character you know just a lone man and a gun fighting all these bad guys he literally had no shoes on you you know like clay mentioned before like when he steps on glass he bleeds like he's exhausted he's hiding out trying to take a break like um it was just a really humanizing choice because sometimes you are caught with your pants down and you just have to deal with it right it kind of allowed Bruce Willis's charm to really you know shine through this film yeah and I would say that's in direct contrast to uh Hobson Shaw and Idris Elba saying I'm black Superman it's like could not be more opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of like you're literally part machine like this (laughs) character who is being thrown like a rag doll around the streets of London is just like oh no big deal Whereas Chris Willis is like, crap, I shouldn't have came here. My feet are bleeding. I'm exhausted. Is this woman worth it? And then I guess she is. Yeah, he's just in a wife beater. And yet he still looks cool, right? He looks so cool. That's not easy. They should have made action figures out of Bruce Willis. He looks so cool. (laughs) And James Bond is a great comparison, right? Because it's not a James Bond movie unless he has a moment where he talks with Q and he soups him up with all the new gadgets for each movie, the supercar, the watch that does whatever the watch does in each movie. But even the lighter that John McClane uses, which is the source of probably the most famous scene where he's in the air ducts using it to light his way. He didn't even start out with that. He didn't get that until he killed Carl and stole his gun and then went in his pocket and found the cigarettes and the lighter. Like everything he has at his disposal to help stop these villains he has to earn along the way which is super cool and you, yeah. I, you don't really see that anymore in these type of like basic blockbuster action movies yeah it almost reminded me of like old school video games where you're just like you have to find the gun as you're going yeah, down and like collect the lighter you know i kind of 
It, it brought me back a little bit. Yeah, like the old uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game where you're just finding random objects and throwing them at people and stuff. And you're like, oh, here's a gun or here's like nunchucks <laughs> or something. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> or like, you know, at the end where he has to use what he's found, like he's got tape and two bullets and he figures out a way to beat the bad guys with it, you know? Yeah. It's just him and his wits. I don't know if you guys have ever played the game The Last of Us, but in The Last of Us, everything you can use, it's like about a zombie apocalypse, but... All of your items are built from like scissors and tape and bricks and bottles that you can find around. And it reminded me of that, of like anything at your disposal, you have to like find and get the most out of and pick up along the way. So yeah, I agree. It was super cool. Definitely a video game feel like killing your opponent and then looting their body (laughs) for what leftover resources pop out. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Super random. But the other movie that kind of came to mind as I was watching this was Home Alone. Which yeah. is also like a similar like Same one era. kid against these two, you yeah. know, two you know, older, stronger adults who were trying to hurt him. So. Guys, uh, we were really sadistic in the late 80s. Really nice. <laughs> right, right. We had all these fantasies about hurting people. <laughs> <laughs> but this movie, like, I think that's what's so great about it. It just has this lasting effect on pop culture like there's so many movies that came after it that we can look back and say oh that trope or that concept first bloomed in die hard for sure especially the air duct you know i've seen so many posts on the internet about what the inside of air ducts actually look like and so many movies have people traveling around a building from the air ducts and how totally impossible that is uh and it all is because of john McClane and hans gruber (laughs) And the other lasting impact of this movie for me is the one-liners and like the punchlines. They're so good every step of the way. I was kind of surprised listening to Yippie-Ki-Yay, motherfucker, because he doesn't even say it with that much oomph in this movie. It's almost like... He really doesn't. No. At the end of a conversation on the walkie-talkie, he's like, well, if I'm a cowboy, then Yippie-Ki-Yay, motherfucker. It might be the other ones where he really like punches it home, but... Like my favorite was when he was on top of the building and he's trying to contact people through the radio and the woman on the other end of the line is like, this is a private channel. It's only for serious inquiries. And he's like, no fucking shit, lady. Does it sound like I'm ordering a pizza? (laughs) I love that line. (laughs) Yeah. Bruce Willis does exasperated so well and it's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of my favorite lines of this whole movie is, Welcome to the party, pal. Just because it's like, it's so quotable and it's so usable in everyday life without being too cheesy. Like, it's basically like, oh, someone's like finally showed up after being late or like they're just now realizing something that everyone else has realized and you could just throw that out. It's so perfect. And my favorite quote is actually in the air ducts is when he's like, come out to the coast. We'll get together, have a few laughs. And you're like, oh, man, he just did want to spend some time with his wife and kids. And now he's like crawling through an air shaft with a lighter to light his way. And this is like the worst situation he could possibly imagine himself in. A great line reason there is the now I know what a TV dinner feels like. (laughs) Oh, yes, that is a great one, too. But he like pulls them off in a way that aren't super cheesy, but they still land. It's, exactly. It's, a, it's not easy to do. The low key subdued nature of the way he says each of these lines is what makes him so good. Sorry to our man, The Rock, but it's not The Rock doing the eyebrow raise like, 
can you smell what the rock's cooking? You know, it's just like a really low key subdued delivery of each of the lines, which makes it that much like more impactful. Just to be clear, this isn't an opportunity for you to take shots at my boy, The Rock, okay? like. <laughs> Sorry, I've thrown a couple in there. I know, I feel like you're like, ooh, lots, a little low jabs there. The Rock was on WWE, right? Like, that is what he was supposed to do. This, yeah, Because he's classically trained wrestler, okay? Yeah, okay. Right, <laughs> classically trained. It's a different vibe altogether. Okay, so let's talk about where it ranks in the 250. This is our series called Tackling the 250. Right now, as it stands, Die Hard is number 124 in the 250, smack between Heat and Rashomon, which shout out Rashomon from our Knives Out podcast. But do you think that's earned? Do you think it deserves that? It was nominated for four Oscars in the year it was released. Didn't win any, but the Oscars were best sound, best film editing, best effects, sound effects editing, and best visual effects. Now I'm kind of like, what did it lose out to on effects? Because I feel like it was really, really good. For 88, it was great. Yeah, I think it definitely deserves a spot in the top 250. Not for overall quality. Like, I'm sure there are movies not on the list that I think are probably better, like actual pieces of film. Like one that came to mind, I don't know why this came to mind, but Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal isn't in the top 250. And I think that's just like a much better movie overall. But just because of like cultural impact, like we said, how it's so ubiquitous in pop culture, everyone knows it. It's like on that Christmas movie list. It's inspired so many ripoffs. It definitely deserves a spot there. Right next to Heat, I don't know, because Heat is freaking amazing. I can't believe I just said frick. Because <laughs> Heat is so good, and I love that movie, but... It definitely deserves a spot somewhere in there. I think 124 is a fair place to put it. Yeah, I would say that too, especially knowing it's ranked right after Heat. I think if anything, maybe Heat's probably just too low in the rankings, if anything. But yeah, you guys know my opinion. I love this movie. I think it's one of the greatest experiences of film of all time. Not necessarily the best movie in that it has the best direction or the best acting, but it's more than some of its parts. Uh, So for me, it's well warranted a place on the top 250. Great way to put it, Clay. More than the sum of its parts. I would totally agree. Malika? I'm sort of embarrassed how few of these movies on this 250 I've seen. So I'm like, do I even deserve an opinion? Also, what's interesting about this list is that it has a ton of Bollywood movies, uh, which I also haven't seen. So this will be an interesting list to work through. Yeah, but that's what makes this fun. We are totally underqualified to have an opinion (laughs) on the list, but we're doing it anyway. That's so true. (laughs) I thought it was a great movie. I enjoyed every second of it. And yes, I think it deserves its place on this list. Let us know if there are any on the 250 that you think are definitely worth us talking about or going through or giving a rewatch. But I think that's it for us today. Yeah, IMDb, sponsor us. Sponsor us, IMDb. Hashtag sponsor us, IMDb. Also, hashtag sponsor us, Almo Draft House. I guess that means sponsor us, so Amazon. Amazon yeah, I was yeah, going to say. exactly. Come on, Jeff. You got a couple Billy to spare. <laughs> I mean, you probably just like leave spare hundos lying around. Like, just, let me get right. a couple of them. We don't need much. We really don't. We just need to pay our sound guy, our producer, Aaron, because he's amazing and we'd be nothing without him. Yes, this would be trash without him. Thank you, Yeah, Aaron. we're doing this over Google Hangouts and Aaron brought me the recording equipment. He's monitoring us. He walked us through the setup the whole time. So, Aaron... You're an angel. Yes, because we're all so responsible and socially distancing. So good job, team. 
Cool. Well, I think that's it for us today. Uh, be on the lookout. We'll be doing more of these tackling the 250, hopefully more than once a week, but we'll have to see as it goes. So thanks for joining. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod, And follow Aaron at ak.audio on Instagram. Thanks, everyone. Until next time. Stay safe. Bye.